Okay, well, um, welcome to this year's uh, John Lockton Lectures, uh, which will be given by Professor Hartree Field on logic, normativity, and rational revisability. Um, before I introduce him, I'll, I'll just say some more practical things, because otherwise, once I get to the philosophy, I uh, forget to, to mention them. Um, the, the first is that uh, after the, the lecture and questions, uh, there'll be a, a reception to which you're all welcome in the uh, Founders Library in, in New College. Uh, if you don't know where that is, just follow Hartree or, or me and you'll, you'll uh, get there. It's uh, sponsored by uh, Oxford University Press, as indeed are the, the lectures themselves, so thanks very much to OP. Um, there's, there's also going to be a, a class uh, for graduate students um, around the, the lectures, which will be on uh, Mondays from uh, 2 to 3 in the lecture room in 10 Merton Street in weeks uh, 2 to, uh, to 6. Um, now, as for Hartwell, you know him. He's the Silver Professor of Philosophy at NYU. He's also taught at at Princeton, at the University of Southern California, the City University of New York. Um, he's, he's the author of four books. He's one of the small group of people whose, whose books I just routinely uh, buy without having to uh, think about whether to, to do it or, or not. Um, the, the first of them... Um, Science without without numbers um, actually was um, elaborated in uh, some lectures that Hartree gave in Oxford uh, the year it was published before it was published uh, when he was visiting fellow at all souls um, in fact which I remember quite quite vividly um, and it's a, a book that. Um, Deservedly won the, the Lokotosh Prize in Philosophy of uh, Science, um, and it's clearly been one of the the most important and influential books in the philosophy of science over the last uh, 50 years. It's just set the agenda for an enormous amount of philosophy of mathematics since it was uh, published and continues to to do so. Um, then there was a collection of essays, Realism, Mathematics and Modality, uh, Truth and the Absence of Fact, and, and now the, the new book, uh, Saving Truth from Paradox. Um, and actually you can, you can learn a lot from this, this book without even going very, very far in it. Uh, from the, the cover you can learn that the truth is a woman. You can see her lurking in the, the background. Um, and it's also very appropriate on St. George's Day that Hartree should be identifying himself with St. George. Um, and if you go a little bit further, um, you, can, you can contemplate the statement based on the preface. Uh, you can deduce that this book will be made into a major motion picture coming soon to a theatre near you. Um, but... 
I think probably you do need to buy the, the book to get some of the, the latest stuff as, as well as the things that you can get uh, just by leafing through it in, in Blackwell's. Um, Hutch has also written a, a number of uh, articles that have been hugely influential. I mean, his very first article, Tarski's Theory of Truth, I think has been reprinted ten times. Of course, it's I mean, that um, started him off on a topic that he's been returning to and um, saying extraordinarily influential uh, things about, not always the same things, but... Um, <laughs> I mean, again, it's, it's been setting the, the agenda for a lot of the, uh, the debate on deflationism and uh, I mean, very often when one, one wants to go to uh, somewhere to get a, a formulation of an issue that, that doesn't just slide over the, the difficulties and subtleties that, that most people fudge over, you have to go to, to Hartree's work to, to get it. Um, I mean, another example of, of that, it would, amongst his early articles, would be the, um, the piece on conceptual role semantics, which also works a lot of that out much more systematically than anybody else has, has done. Another of his papers has been hugely influential is the, uh, the one on mental representation. Uh, and now um, we can look forward to a series of lectures which I, I trust will, will turn into his, his fifth book and um, if, if they're going to be anything like as influential as the previous four, the sooner I shut up the better. <laughs> So I, I'm. Uh, oh, can people hear me? Okay. So, so I'm. I'm. I'm very pleased to have been asked to do the lock lectures. Um, I was a bit surprised actually because I'd never worked on Locke, and the task of coming up with six lectures on his work seemed a bit daunting until I got into it. Um, but it's nice to have such a distinguished audience for my first venture into the history of philosophy. Um, so, whoops. Um, well, we have a problem here. Um, why is that green thing on? Is there any reason why that's on? Okay, well, oh, that should do it. Um, okay. You're not a leader. So, all right. So, uh, however, to put um, Locke's ideas into a general philosophical context, I'll begin with a, a puzzle which I think is of interest independent of Locke, and I'll get to Locke only in lecture seven. <laughs> okay, so, so here's the... Um, the the lectures are are going to be somewhat independent of each other, but um, but the unifying theme of them is their relevance to the following puzzle, um, which I have up there on the thing. So uh, 
it's it's four four claims which seem to be seem to each have a certain amount of intuitive force, but which which are incompatible with each other. Um, so the first one is: at any time, a person possesses a highest level epistemic norm that constitutes the person's standards of rational formation and retention of beliefs at that time. Uh, the second, which assumes the first, is that it's then not possible for the person to rationally revise that highest level epistemic norm under any conditions. The third is that any sufficiently high level rational norm must include a logic. And actually a, 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 a reasonably powerful one. And then the final one is that for any logic which is powerful enough in the sense of premise three, uh, it would be possible for a person to rationally revise the logic under certain conditions. Now, I should say that I've I've put the four claims somewhat vaguely, um, and it it may be that without some sharpening the formulations, it's impossible to say definitively which of the four should go. But I'm not I'm not going to try to uh, put them very sharply because I'm I, I'm I'm less in, in interest in the question of which one should go than in figuring out the role of logic in rationality in a way that is sensitive to issues about logical revision. Uh, and, and so the inconsistent foursome is just in, intended its way to spur thinking about this. Um, and just to preview a little bit, um, I think that an adequate resolution of the puzzle uh, pretty much requires giving up a central presupposition of contemporary epistemology, roughly speaking, uh, normative realism in epistemology. Um, But I think that that sort of epistemological realism is worth giving up on independent grounds. This is what I'll talk about in the fifth lecture. Um, So what I'm going to do today is to try to uh, uh, create a sense that there really is a puzzle here, um, uh, and and I'll do that by trying to make an initial case for what 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 strike me is probably likely to strike you as the most controversial two premises, namely number one and number two, um, um, and and. Uh, they're actually the ones that strike me as the most controversial also. Um, So what I'm going to do today is to try to make premises one and two initially plausible. Um, Next time I'll be uh, basically defending premise number three and the two times after that I'll be basically defending premise number four. Um, uh, So my own view is that one and two are really where the action is. Um, but um, so today I'll try to make them initially plausible, even if I, even though I don't believe them, and then I will come back to them more critically in the final lecture. Um, and I guess I should say to start, I, I have an easier time making a prima facie case for claim number two 
than I do for claim number one. Uh, as you'll see, my prima facie claim for my prima facie case for claim number one is going to be a little uh, sketchy. But um, uh, even though that's true, my claim in the final lecture will be that it's, it's claim two, which is the most deeply incorrect one. Okay, so um, so claim one just to remind you what it is, it's there at the top. Uh, so first some background discussion. Uh, um, the first thing is what does highest level epistemic norm mean? And actually, before that even, what does epistemic norm itself mean? So on, on epistemic norms, I'm going to take an epistemic norm to be a policy. Uh, a policy both for believing uh, this and that or, or, or believing them to a certain degree and also for acting so as to improve one's epistemic situation. Um, for instance, by trying to get more evidence to think up more possible explanations or to uh, figure out what the logical relations among some claims are. Um, so it, it, I, I'm actually only interested in the kind of policies for which an, an agent has some kind of deep commitment to, but uh, I don't want to build that in because I want to be able to talk of norms in abstraction from agents. Um, now, this way, thinking of norms as policies is opposed to thinking of them as normative claims. And that is an alternative natural way to think of them. So an example of a normative claim uh, that you could think of as an example of an epistemic norm would be you shouldn't believe a conjunction without believing the conjuncts. Um, but what I want to do is to think of the normative claim as generated by the policy, so that it's the policy which is uh, fundamental. So a, a person is uh, committed to a certain policy, and as a result of that commitment, that generates a norm for the agent, uh, a, a normative claim for the agent. So, for instance, we have a policy of not believing a conjunction without believing the conjuncts, this policy plays a very central role in our thinking. And uh, when we say that we shouldn't believe a conjunction without believing the conjuncts, what we're doing is expressing our commitment to this policy. Uh, and so the reason that I want to focus on policies rather than on normative claims is to, is to leave open a kind of normative anti-realism of the kind I'm going to talk about in lecture five. I mean, the idea is that the, the policies are there um, even if you're a normative anti-realist. Uh, my focusing on, on, on policies that doesn't doesn't prejudge against normative realism. It's, uh, it's compatible with going either way on that. So 
to illustrate, it would be hard to deny that the policy of not believing a conjunction without believing the contents has a, has a very important status that contrary policies don't have. I mean, uh, uh, um, well, according to the normative realist, the special status is being objectively correct. That is, uh, following it involves believing as one objectively ought to believe. Um, now, I think this is prima facie plausible in the case of deductive policies like the one above. It, I think it's much less plausible when you come to inductive policies. Um, but I'm actually going to eventually argue it to be wrong even in the deductive case. Um, but, but speaking of norms as policies doesn't prejudge the issue either way. The issue of realism is the issue of whether it makes sense to talk of some norms or policies as being ob- objectively correct or the objectively right ones to employ. An, an anti-realist will think that that doesn't really make any sense, but, but can still talk about, first of all, which, which norms a person does follow, and secondly, the advantages and disadvantages that certain norms have over others. Um, so, in particular, the anti-relative certainly isn't going to deny that the above policy about conjunctions is much better than alternative policies in ways of better that can then be given quite specific content. Um, uh, so, it will given explanation of the betterness of some norms um, without employing a notion of objective correctness. Okay, now let me switch to the harder thing, which is uh, levels. So here's an, here's an example of a low-level epistemic norm. Uh, believe what you read in the New York Times unless it appears under the byline of Elizabeth Miller. Um, now, that's the kind of policy that one can easily revise b- by getting more in, in information. For instance, as you, as you read more, you can uh, learn to add to the list of uh, reporters who are just shills of the Bush administration um, and who you shouldn't believe. So how, how do you make the revision? Um, it's by following a broadly inductive policy um, so uh, in, in, induction basically is another epistemic policy and intuitively it's a higher level okay so claim one is that there is a uh, highest level policy that we do or should employ um, now, I, I said to start, I think that the conviction that there is, is such a highest level norm is probably due less to arguments uh, for that claim than to an inability to think of what a clear alternative to the idea is. But let me see if we can <coughs> construct an, an argument. And uh, I, I should say before I 
do this. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm reminded here of an, of an 18th century wit who remarked, no one ever doubted the existence of God until Samuel Clark undertook to demonstrate it. Um, and I think that what follows is going to be a, a Samuel Clark-like argument. Um, as I say, I, 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 I'm not really committed to this view in any case. This is just to kind of get you to, to see a, a certain kind of case for the view. So a key, a key part of establishing that there's a um, highest level norm is to establish that the relation of one norms being of higher level than another, at least for a particular person, is a partial order. That is a, a transitive, irreflexive relation. Now, this it, it first seems quite plausible, but that might be only because the term higher level than kind of tends to prejudge it. So in order to make sense of this, what we have to do is to, is, is to argue, argue for it without relying on the terminology of being higher level than. So let's try to clarify the premise without that. The, the, the natural thought is that if I revise my policy about trusting the New York Times um, by, by finding a, a new domain in which to tr- distrust them, then this will because my, be, because my previous policy of trusting them in that new domain came into conflict with other things that I believe and I use some kind of general inductive policy of some kind to decide that in this situation it was the policy of trusting the New York Times rather than the inductive policy that ought to be scrapped. So the inductive policy overruled the policy about trusting the Times. And it's the relation of Potentially overrule it, or, or maybe the, the transitive closure of that. You want. Uh, it's it's that relation that the levels talk takes to be a partial order. Um, well, it seems clear that potentially overruling is reflexive. That is, nothing can overrule itself. Um, so the issue is going to be. The transitivity, and um, okay. So, so um, uh, given that you can transitively close, really what you have to do to establish the partial order is to show that there are no loops in the overruling relation. And um, so let's talk about the simplest case, uh, loops of length two. Uh, That is, we want, want to establish that 
we can't have A overruling B and B overruling A at the same time. Um, so here's, here's the argument. Um, it seems hard to imagine that for any normal person, the policy of trust in the New York Times could, could, could ever overrule the inductive policy. However, there probably are people for whom uh, a policy of, of, of trust in something else, say the Bible, could overrule their inductive policy. But this doesn't create a failure of anti-symmetry unless their inductive policy can also overrule their trust in the Bible. Um, so could, could an agent regard each of these policies, which I have P, Bible and P inductive as overruling each other. Well, we can imagine that in some situ- that in some situations the agent takes the Bible as overruling, and in other situations the agent takes induction as overruling. But um, but then there would have to be an answer to the question of when the first takes precedent and when the second one does, and. That seems to be a further policy, intuitively one of higher level than both, that serves for the agent as the decider that can overrule each of them. Um, So we don't count the two policies as potential overrulers of each other. We think of each as potentially overruled only by the decider policy, which then becomes of higher level than both of them. So we don't have a failure of anti-symmetry. And, and this seems like the typical situation. Well, basically the same thing goes when, uh, for loops of length longer than two. Um, uh, so uh, if, if in some situations we appear to let policy P1 overrule P2 and in others let P2 overrule P3 and so forth, and in others letting uh, uh, PN overrule P1, then in any situation where the policies come into conflict, we have to decide which one not to follow. Uh, so I, don't, I mean consciously decide. We... we uh, decide only in the sense that there are, are ones that we don't follow in those circumstances. Um, so what determines which ones we follow? Well, it seems, it seems like a, a decider policy that is intuitively of higher level than all of the policies P1 through Pn, in that it can't be revised by uh, uh, conflict with P1 through Pn. All right, well, as I said, I'm going to look at this argument more critically at some point. But uh, for now, let's grant that it establishes a partial order among a person's policies so that we can sensibly speak of one policy as being of lower level than another. And, And then we can define what it is to be of the same or incomparable level uh, as so P1 is of the same or incomparable level as P2 to mean it's neither the case that P1 is of lower level than P2 nor that P2 is of lower level than P1  
and um, I mean, there may be principles for deciding whether you want to regard P1 and P2 as of the same level or as of incomparable level, but but for my purposes, I can just treat those together. Now, claim one, which, which I'm in the process of quasi-arguing for, was that at any time, each person possesses a highest level epistemic norm. So this requires more than just that it potentially overrules is a partial order. For instance, it rules out there being an infinite sequence of higher and higher level norms, uh, each of which over is a potential overruler of the predecessor. But here it looks like some kind of finitude of assumption rules that out. Um, um, I mean, presumably a person doesn't possess infinitely many norms at a given time, um, and so that's enough to rule that out. Well, we're still not quite there yet. Uh, nothing so far rules out there being more than one maximal norm. Um, um, so if there's more than one, they are of the same or incomparable levels. But, but, but what rules that out? Well, here the thought is, if there is more than one, why not just regard them not as separate norms, but as aspects of a single norm? Now, there are two cases here to consider. Uh, the first is where the maximal norms never can come into conflict with each other. If that's true, then um, then the, there's no problem uh, just regarding them as aspects of a, a single norm. And it, it does seem sort of plausible that they couldn't come in, in into conflict because if the norms were to come into conflict, uh, it seems like we'd try to resolve the conflict and this would require a higher level norm. But by their maximality, there can't be a higher level norm, so they can't come into conflict. That's the argument there. Um, but I don't actually need to rely on that our, our argument because... Um, it it could be that um, the maximum norms can come in into conflict, but we have no norm for resolving that conflict. But then here too, we could always count the maximal norms as just part of a single norm. Uh, in this case, uh, one which could lead to inconsistent verdicts under unfavorable con conditions. Okay, so so the idea is that we can always combine the maximum norms into a, uh, a single one. Okay, so that that concludes my Samuel Clark-like argument. Um, so, uh, um, as I said, I I don't I don't take this argument entirely seriously. Uh, I think there are some questionable moves in it. Or, or, or uh, a better way to put it probably is that there's one questionable move that was made 
several times in different guises. Uh, so I, I will come back to that. Um, but I don't think that this is the whole problem with the incompatible foursome. And, and, and that's good because, as I said, I, I think the plausibility of claim one is due less to arguments for it than to the difficulty of finding an alternative model. So let me go now to claim two. Um, and here, I think the argument for it looks prima facie more engaging. Um, so claim two was that it isn't... Uh, I'm assuming there is a highest level norm. It isn't possible for a person to rationally revise it under any conditions. And this seems a clear consequence of three premises. First, that rational revision requires the use of a norm. Secondly, that if the rational revision of norm N by went, went, went by the use of some norm other than N, then N couldn't be a highest level norm. And third, that no norm can dictate its own revision, or at least uh, no norm that we can use can do so, and that's enough for the argument. All right, so what about these three claims? Well, A, A, A looks pretty intuitive. If somebody revises a norm by some means other than a norm, say by being hit on the head by a falling brick or something, um, then even if the new norm is better than the old one, the, the revision isn't a rational one. So A looks pretty good. How about B? We'll, 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 I think B looks pretty good too because it seems to be just a consequence of the definition of highest level norm. So the only other one is C. Uh, no norm can dictate its own revision. Um, or the or the strength and form of that. Um, and here, the idea is that for a norm to tell us to revise itself would be to, for it to tell us not to follow itself in the future. But then it seems like following that norm would require not following it, so we couldn't follow it. That's the argument. I'll, I'll spell that out in a, in a moment, um, but first I want to clarify it. Um, I, uh, there's a, a, a possible ambiguity here, and I want to make clear that I'm, I'm advocating C in a strong form. Okay. In particular, I'm interpreting it to mean that no norm can dictate that it be revised even in part. So, a natural idea about the rational revision of norms is that it's always going to be gradual. Uh, using a norm P1, we can make a small revision to a norm P2 
then to P3, and so forth. And so a large change in norm can result from this by a long chain of small revisions. Now, one way to describe a small revision uh, is to say that the initial norm isn't revising all of itself, but only part of itself. But I'm taking claim C in a way that goes against this, uh, that goes against even such partial revision. That is, P1 dictating a, a revision of part of itself counts as P1 revising itself, so that if C stands, we can't have a, have a chain of small revisions where each PI uh, dictates that it be replaced by PI plus one. So, okay, so that's to make C look implausibly strong, but now let me sketch an argument for it. So I've, I've repeated C at the top of the slide, just so you can remember it. Um, okay, so here's the argument. A norm is a policy of some sort. Let's say, for the moment, it's a precise policy that dictates what to do under every conceivable situation. Um, um, I, I think I could make the argument go with, with less strong assumptions, but this way it's simpler. <clears throat> okay, so suppose there were a conceivable situation E such that were it to arise, P would dictate its own revision. That is, P would dictate that from that point on, one should follow some alternative policy P star. Maybe only slightly different from P, but, but at least a little bit different. So what, what must be the case for P star to be genuinely an alternative to P, even giving the attaining of E? Well, there must be some conceivable situation F that includes E's having obtained, in which P star and P differ in their dictates about what to do. P dictates doing X, and P star dictates doing X star. But in that case, if P dictates following P star, it has to be inconsistent. By hypothesis, it dictates doing X, but it also dictates switching to P star, and that involves doing X star. And these are incompatible. Um, so, uh, presumably, an inconsistent norm is one that nobody could employ, so no norm that people could employ could dictate their own revision. That's the argument. So, or at least that's the initial argument, I should say, because one way to resist it is in this last step, which said that nobody could employ an inconsistent norm. So, why is that? Uh, uh, you might say, well, it's quite possible to employ an inconsistent policy for a while. That is, before the inconsistency becomes salient. Um, okay, so I, I, I want to argue against this as a way out. Before doing so, 
I should make clear what I mean by an inconsistent policy. So a policy according to which under certain conditions C, one should simultaneously believe A and not A is not automatically an inconsistent policy for two reasons. Um, the lesson in interesting is that it, it isn't a policy that requires inconsistent belief. It only requires inconsistent belief should circumstances C arise. Um, but the more important reason is that, is that even, even a policy that unconditionally requires inconsistent belief can be a perfectly consistent policy as long as it doesn't simultaneously require not having inconsistent belief. Um, now, this is maybe a slight digression, but <coughs> relevant to something later. Um, so, Having, having inconsistent beliefs isn't, al- isn't always such a terrible thing, even if we recognize the inconsistency, because there are, are, are ways of working with inconsistency to keep it from spreading. The most popular thing to say about this is, it, 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 at this point, is to talk about paraconsistent logics. Um, but I, I don't think that's actually so in, in interesting. What I have in mind instead is this is what are called uh, chunk and permeate procedures, which I think is due to a paper by Bryson Brown and Graham Priest. Um, so when, when one finds oneself with an inconsistent set of beliefs but doesn't know how best to remove the inconsistency, the idea is that you, you break the set of beliefs into useful chunks and you reason logically within each chunk, and then you adopt restrictions about which sort of conclusions drawn within one chunk are allowed to pass to another. You've got this kind of semi-permeable membrane between the chunks, hence the the label chunk and permeate. Now, I think this is a good model of how we steer around recognized inconsistencies within beliefs. Uh, And so following a specific chunk and permeate strategy can be part of a consistent policy for dealing with inconsistent beliefs. But now the question arises, well, if we can work with inconsistent beliefs, can't we work with inconsistent policies? Uh, aren't our policy somehow written into our heads in the same way that theoretical beliefs are? And doesn't make doesn't this make them liable to inconsistency too? Well, for some kind of policies, I have no doubt that this is so. Um, but I don't think this is right for any policy that is a candidate for a fundamental norm. So. And policies are, are sets of rules, and for familiar reasons, we can't suppose that all of the rules that an agent employs are explicitly represented in their heads. There's a familiar regress where we would need uh, policies or rules for, for, for processing the internal representations. Um, so some of the policies or rules that we describe a person as employing are merely 
uh, implicit in the person's practice. But this means that they result from a kind of idealization in the person's practice. And it's at least somewhat natural to suppose that the process of idealization imposes consistency. If that's so, then we can't reasonably suppose that the high-level rules or policies governing a person's epistemic behavior are inconsistent. And then the idea that we employ an inconsistent policy for a while until the inconsistency becomes salient is no way around the argument that a policy that dictates its own revision is inconsistent and therefore unemployable. Um, so uh, I don't really ultimately want to rest on that premise that that the process of idealization always imposes consistency um, and I don't think I need to because I don't think that allowing for the possibility of inconsistency in fundamental policies is, is enough to very much reduce the plausibility of the, of the case for claim uh, C. Um, so let's grant that we can follow inconsistent policies uh, or inconsistent fundamental policies then we can have an inconsistent policy P that dictates doing X and simultaneously dictates switching to a policy that demands doing something incompatible with X. So let's grant that there's that that's possible. But still, there is no way to do both X... Sorry. There's no way to both do X and not do X. So the policy, in effect, leaves us with no idea what to do. And in fact, I think it's even a bit misleading to say that that the policy dictates its own revision. I mean, it does dictate its own revision, but it equally dictates that it not revise itself. I mean, after all, it's an inconsistent policy. Uh, It's going to, in fact, dictate everything. So... The point is that this doesn't look like a good way to understand the rational revision of uh, logic. So we might have these inconsistent policies, and they might implicitly tell us to revise themselves, but only because they implicitly tell us everything. It doesn't seem like uh, we, we have the grounds here for distinguishing rational from irrational changes. That's the point. All right. So let me review. Um, So I made an initial case for claim one that at any given time, for any given person, there is a highest level epistemic norm. And then claim two that if there's such a highest level norm, then it's not rationally revisable was divided into three subclaims, A, B, and C. And um, it seemed like C looked like the most contentious of them. 
And so it's the one that I most discussed. But I, I think I made something of a, uh, a, a case for claim C, and that, that this then gives a, a, a good prima facie case for claim two. Um, so, so putting claims one and two together, we get the conclusion that at any time a person possesses what we might call an ultimate norm, by which I will mean a norm which is both a highest level norm and which is not rationally revisable. So, to repeat, this is only intended as an initial case. Uh, I will actually contest this contest the case in the final lecture, but but, um, but I do think it is something of an initial case. Now, let me just talk briefly about one argument that one sometimes hears against there being a highest uh, uh, against there being an ultimate norm, that is the highest level norm that isn't rationally revisable. And this one is also divided into A through C, but capital A through capital C. Um, so, a any sufficiently powerful norm must include an inductive policy. B, for any norm N, one can imagine strong inductive evidence that some other norm N star with a different inductive policy works better than N does. And third, uh, Given such evidence, it would be rational to switch inductive policies and hence to switch norms. Um, But here I want to argue that there's no clear reason why we should believe claim B. That any norm is in inductively undermineable. Any inductive policy can be inductively undermined. So, um, I think it's true that for any known attempt to formalize our inductive policies, uh, one can imagine evidence that would undermine that inductive policy as formalized. In fact, I don't even think you need to do much imagining. I think that for any known attempt to formalize our inductive policies, we actually have evidence that that undermines the inductive policy as formalized. Um, So the proper conclusion from this is that every known attempt to formalize our inductive policies fails to do so. Um, they may adequately formalize the use of certain kinds of evidence, but they aren't general enough to formalize all the ways that we employ empirical evidence. That's why it's possible to come up with evidence of a kind that they don't take account of to undermine the dictates of the policy as formalized. So... I think this is hardly a shocker. Um, our actual inductive policies are very complicated, and uh, it would be very hard to formalize them in full generality. 
So there's no reason to extrapolate from the undermining of an inadequate formalization of our inductive policies to the undermining of an adequate formalization of them. That's the message. So where are we? Um, so the question I was just considering is uh, the claim that there is a highest level inductive policy that no empirical considerations could undermine. And I, I was considering that for its bearing on the question too uh, of whether there's a highest level norm that no rational considerations could undermine. Now, I think that even a strong case in favor of the first claim wouldn't clearly support the second claim because there might be rational considerations of a non-inductive nature that would be relevant to a revision. But I do think that a case against the first claim would, to some extent, extend to a case against the second claim. But what I was trying to do in the last slide was to undermine the argument against claim one. Uh, So as yet, we have no case against claim two. And I earlier gave a prima facie reason in favor of claim two. So what it's intended to appear so far is that claim two has something in favor of it, nothing against it, so we should tentatively believe it. However, now we then have the puzzle raised on the opening slide, because claim two here implies that if all of logic is included in the highest level norm, then logic is not rationally... revisable. So it looks like we have to choose between two somewhat unpalatable claims that logic isn't included in the highest level norm and that um, uh, uh, logic is not rationally revisable. Um, And I'm going to argue that logic is rationally revisable in lectures three and four and um, so now one, one, one possible reaction which one often hears uh, is, to, is that we need to discriminate between parts of the logic so we posit a core logic that's included in our highest level norm and also extensions of the core logic which can be rationally revised. Now, I'm not, I'm not going to consider this view in detail uh, because uh, I will argue that we don't really need the view in the end. But a serious worry about it is that there's no obvious basis for 
distinguishing between what is in the core and what isn't in the core. So, for instance, if you're willing to grant that logic is rationally revisable, then it seems difficult to find any substantial part of it that is immune to rational vision. So let's consider examples of the different kinds of of, uh, modifications of logic that have been proposed over the years. Um, So I'll start with myself. Uh, um, uh, uh, it seems to me that considerations of the paradoxes support restricting excluded middle uh, certain common versions of reductio ad absurdum and certain laws involving the conditional I'll explain that uh, in the third lecture I guess Um, now dialetheists Propose that instead of giving up excluded middle, we give up uh, a law called disjunctive syllogism. Uh, a or B, not A, therefore B. Uh, Intuitionists in propose giving up not only excluded middle, but also the law of double negation in one of the De Morgan laws. Um, Van McGee famously proposed giving up modus ponens um, though his, his example in favor of it may support giving up a different law in, in involving the conditional uh, Putnam proposed giving up the distributive law and even a law as seemingly obvious as the inference from A and B to A has sometimes been doubted for instance by advocates of dynamic logics in which the first conjunct can, uh, sorry, in in which the second conjunct can now undo the commitments of the first one. So, if our norms allow for serious consideration and perhaps adoption of any one of these under suitable circumstances, there's not going to be much of anything left in your core logic. Um, Now, I don't think this really entirely settles the issue of court logic for a couple of reasons. First, some of these proposals I, I think are far less serious than others are. And it's, it isn't clear that we should regard the more frivolous of them as supporting a case for rational visibility. I mean, I included them because the line between the frivolous and the non-frivolous seems a little hard to draw. Um, uh, so an advocate of the, of the court logic idea would, would have to draw that line somehow. Um, also, there's a different way of con- conceiving of a court logic, which is not as a set of topic-neutral lo- principles, but is a set of logical principles together with the domain of application. And uh, if you do that, there's much more hope for the core logic idea. 
so the idea would be there's no rational revision of certain logical principles in a certain domain. Uh, and in particular, um, probably the domain of most interest here would be the domain of uh, proof theory or arithmetic. Um, so perhaps it could be argued that all the highest level norm requires is 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 a logic that is rationally unrevisable in its applications to arithmetic. And if that were your view, then the chance of getting a substantial core logic would be vastly higher. Um, so anyway, the, the issue of a core logic is actually a complicated one. Uh, and um, I, I don't really have a case against it, but I'm not going to pursue it because... Um, because I, I think that I don't need to in the end. Um, okay, so I, I'm, I'm basically going to end here, um, but uh, there is one other option for those who accept uh, the claims that I, I quasi-argued for today and accept the rational visibility of of logic and are unwilling to posit a core logic which isn't rationally revisable. And that is to divorce logic completely from our norms. And this option seems to have been advocated by Gil Harmon, and it's going to be the topic of the next lecture. Uh, so I'll just have a final slide that previews the next lecture. Um, so what Harmon does is, is argue that it's impossible to spell out a believable connection between logic and rational belief for a, a battery of reasons. And he argues for a view of logic that doesn't need one. Namely, he thinks of logic as the science of what forms of inference preserve truth by logical necessity. So what I'm going to be doing next time is to, is first of all, to combat the first claim by trying to spell out a believable connection between logic and rationality, which uh, overcomes the problems that he raises. And as far as the second one goes, um, I'm... I'm going to argue that the view of logic as the science of what preserves truth by logical necessity can be definitively shown wrong um, and that there's no other even initially plausible alternative to the view that there is a special normative role for logic. Okay, so that's the advertisement for next time and that's the end.